and you're listening to a sermon from Bent Tree Church in Loveland, Colorado. For more information about Bent Tree, visit BentTreeChurch.com. Well, good morning, church family. It's good to see you guys. So glad to, to be worshiping with you this wonderful summer morning. Uh, so glad if you're new to be joining with you as you come and worship uh, here. Uh, just so much going on at Bent Tree, uh, and, and I know in our community, so it's good to just take time to be together. My name is Paul Trimble. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, you should know that we do something kind of strange here. Don't worry, we're not going to make you stand up or anything like that. We just we do something that churches used to do all the time, but just not very many churches do anymore, and that is we study the Bible and we do it like in depth. So go ahead, if you've got a Bible, yeah, praise God. Uh, go ahead and get your Bible out. Uh, if you've got a paper one, great. Or you can download the Bible app and look at that stuff. And we have this saying here at Bentry. We say we want to go deep to grow deep. Uh, and, and we mean that in, in studying in depth so that we can grow into to deeply rooted, mature Christians that have this deep love and relationship with God through his son, Jesus. And then because of that relationship, then the spirit of God begins to change us, shape us, mold us, to, to give us a new heart, a new mind. In other words, a new way to feel and a new way to think. And friends, when that happens, God begins to get the credit because your friends know it can't be you. We, we give him the glory. And people are drawn to Jesus because they see our lives are different than they used to be and different from the world. And when they ask why we're different, we get to share the gospel story with them. The, simply the story of who Jesus is, how he changed our lives. With that in mind, let me start with this new section of scripture today. We're going to tackle with this question, how can we know God? I mean, personally, like in, in a relationship, can, can we know God? Is that even like a possibility? We can know a great deal about something or someone uh, simply and, and simply not know them. I mean, I can get online, I can research Elon Musk, and there's tons of facts and interviews. I can find tons of stuff about Elon Musk uh, and, and from even his friends. But would I have a relationship with him? Now, why? Two, two reasons. All of that stuff I find online, we don't know if it's really true since he hasn't really revealed it to you or I personally. By the way, sorry to burst your bubble here. Just because you read something online, uh, it doesn't mean it's necessarily true. I know some of you are like, <laughs> And two, in a relationship, there's got to be some give and take, right? A, a pursuit of a relationship from both parties. Relationship means a status of relating to each other. At least two parties, one to the other. And an ongoing relationship where at least two parties in that relationship open up, share information about themselves, and then they seek to know the other. In true relationships, there's this openness between the parties to want to know each other more and then do life together, at least on some level. So go back to my question. How can we know God? And really what I'm asking, is there a relationship even possible with this all-knowing, all-powerful God? Because here's the deal. If God truly is infinite, I mean all-knowing, all-powerful, and we're this little finite little person in every way, how can we know God in a relationship? I mean, if he tries to pour into us and we're so finite. I mean, have you ever noticed this? Some people claim to know God, but it's more like they just know stuff about God. Like me saying, I know Elon Musk. I, I can know a truckload about the guy from the internet, but there's no relationship, no friendship there that I've got. Well, lots of people throughout history have said they know about God, haven't they? But the question then is just begged to be asked, is, is there a way to verify that someone knows God? Now, up to this point, as we've studied in the Gospel of John together, it's been rich and full of information about Jesus. There's been some, some stuff from him, from sure, as he's preached. But really, it's been more others talking about him and events kind of surrounding him. 
He's definitely done some teaching, but now (laughs) it gets enormous. Today we enter this new section of scripture that raises the stakes to a new and higher level. Because what we're about to see now is Jesus teaching us about who he is. And we call that Christology. Big fancy word just means Christ study or the study of Christ. Now, if you're new to this whole Christian thing, you you might have heard the name Jesus Christ. Christ is not Jesus's somehow last name. It's rather his title. Christ or the Hebrew equivalent of the Greek word, the Hebrew word for Christ is Messiah. So you see the Old Testament or what we call the Hebrew scriptures sometimes teaches of a promised one or sometimes called in the anointed one that would come from God. Throughout the Old Testament, this promised one, the anointed one, is taught and revealed to us through God speaking through his prophets, priests, kings, even ordinary dudes. When, when Jesus is born, lives in this sinless life, is, is crucified and dies and then is resurrected from the dead on the morning of the third day. Listen, it's Jesus' resurrection and his life then that makes us look at his teachings, his miracles, then the Old Testament promises of the Messiah and realize, well, this is the guy. This is, this, this is like the promised one, right? What, what we're about to begin to see in Christology in John chapter 5 is Jesus himself then begins to reveal who he is, his characteristics, who he really is to those listening. Now, on one hand, you could simply take this as information, kind of like we read about Elon Musk. But there is something so much more powerful that can happen and will take place for many of you today. This is kind of freaky to think about, but what Jesus is doing here, I mean right now, through the Spirit of God, is he is showing us who he really is. He is opening up to us, I mean the people sitting in this room, those watching online, He's inviting us into a relationship through that process of getting to know him. Now, I know that's a massive claim. Well, especially if you're not a Christian. If you're just like checking the whole Jesus out. Like maybe you got drug here. You didn't really want to come. Maybe they like promised you lunch afterwards. Hold them to it. You know, but, but it is in this passage that we begin to hear straight from Jesus' lips He's going to be revealing who he is to us. And my prayer in just a moment will be then to have that not just communicated from written words and from me talking, but by the very spirit of God himself showing you in your heart who Jesus is. I'm I'm praying that it will change your life to save you. And if you are saved, then to draw you into a deeper relationship with him. Well, lots of big claims for a preacher Let's put our money where our mouth is. Let's pray. Let's get going on this. But uh, first, would you bow your head? Let's just go to God and ask him to back this up. God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Father, thank you for our freedom we have in your son, Jesus Christ. And thank you for the freedom that we just have to worship in this place today, in this country. God, we lift up those all over the world right now that are worshiping and in places that don't have the same freedom as we do. God, strengthen them, protect them, grow them up, and and you, God, and, and add to their numbers. God, we open your text today with just great expectation that you, through your Holy Spirit, are going to take these words and move them into our hearts. Lord, help us to let the worries of this last week or the coming week, the thoughts that might be taking our mind, help those slip away right now. God, we offer our attention to you as an act of worship. Teach us what we don't know. Correct us, our beliefs that we have that are wrong. Grow us up to be mature believers, followers. Make us like your son, Jesus. God, you have our time and our focus. Grow our relationship with you today. It is in the name of Jesus Christ we all prayed and said, 
Amen. Amen. Well, if you're able, would you just stand with me just for a moment as I read from our text today? Just, it's kind of an act of worship just to stand. If you can, if you can't, don't worry about it. Remember when I finished reading our text, I say this, this is the word of God and you say out loud, thanks be to God. Okay. Got it. John chapter five, verse 15. The man went and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Therefore, the Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing, and he will show him greater works than these that you will be amazed. And just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so the son also gives life to whom he wants. The father, in fact, judges no one but has given all judgment to the son so that all people may honor the son just as they honor the father. Anyone who does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Truly, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not come under judgment but has passed from death to life. This is the word of God. All right, you guys have a seat. Let's start off with some foundational doctrine, shall we? Meaning this is a foundation that we can think through all the other stuff on top of this. Many of you know this. First, I asked you earlier, how can we know God? Well, think about this. We can only know about God simply because he has chosen to make himself known to us first. Without that, we would still be lost. Can I just make that claim? So let's start with the fact that God made the first move in making himself known to us. God's revelation of himself was his first act of grace poured out, something that we didn't deserve. He was not obligated to tell us anything. We were guilty, right? So something we have to start with is that God's most complete revelation of himself was sending his son Jesus to reconcile us to him. And in doing so, show us what Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of God the Father's nature. We see that in Christ Jesus. Now we start with that. God came to rescue us. Now that's tier one doctrine or what we sometimes refer to as closed-handed doctrine as opposed to sometimes I say open-handed doctrine. You don't have to understand this to be saved, but it will be instrumental in your spiritual growth from very early on. That doctrine, tier, tier one doctrine, uh, with the next thing that I'm talking about that I'll share with you to help you understand the basics of how can we know God. Because you'll begin to recognize this foundational stuff throughout the Bible as you read it uh, and hear it preached. On this next foundational piece, we're only going to hit the basics of it for a few moments here. I've preached on it many times before. Don't worry if you don't get this all today, this foundational doctrine. I want you to see, though, this in operation as we move forward. By the way, talking about an infinite God pouring his infinite being into us, this doctrine will challenge you. It will stretch you. At Bentry, we hold to the old school, first century orthodox teaching that God is one. Can I hear an amen? amen. God is one. Who existing in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, this is foundational doctrine that we call the Trinity. We're a Trinitarian church. 
Although oversimplified, this next graph I'm going to show you can help us understand just a little bit. Take a look at this one. Here it is. When we talk about God being one and yet a triune God, triune meaning three, this is what we mean. The three persons of God in the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, one God. But at the very same time, it's not a single person who sometimes acts like the Father, sometimes acts like the Son, sometimes acts like the Holy Spirit. That's a heresy called modalism. A lot of good Christians, maybe you've fallen into this when they've tried to explain the Trinity, they'll end up saying something like that. (laughs) By the way, I laugh, I shouldn't laugh at this, but if you've ever read the book or watched the movie, The Shack, that is not in any way accurate to think about the doctrine of the Trinity. In fact, it is so wrong, it is uh, seriously not biblical. Uh, I always cringe when I hear Christians say, Pastor, I never understood the Trinity until I saw the shack. Um, and now I know how it works. And I just always, I, I used to have couth when I'd say this, but I'd just go, no, no, you don't, you don't. Because if that's what you understand, because it's wrong, it's wrong. But here's what I want us to also see. Although the Trinity, or what we sometimes call the Godhead, is made up of three persons, notice that God the Father here is not the Son. The Son is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Father, and the Spirit is not the Son. You see this? By the way, this is not a new doctrine. This is ancient stuff. And although the Bible doesn't use the word Trinity, that's a theological word, the Bible clearly teaches it, listen to me, from Genesis 1-1 all the way through Revelation 22. What's kind of cool is if you've ever seen this design in the old jewelry uh, or uh, Celtic jewelry or even in the gravestones, uh, this is also the Trinity. You ever seen that? That's the Trinity. That's how they used to teach that. Um, It means the same thing as the big ugly graph I just had up. I showed you just a moment ago. But they would know, because many of them couldn't read, they would know this is what it was. We could spend all of our time here and it would be good. But we'll come back to this Trinity again and again and again, teach on this. But I just wanted to remind you of just the basics to have a foundation. Now the reason The passage in John is so powerful is that the way to have a relationship with God the Father is through the Son by the Spirit. In other words, the way to interact with God is always, always, always through this relationship of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet still one God. We see this Trinity at work in the creation of the universe. In the creating matter, time, and space. We see it at work in Jesus Christ coming to earth to be born of a human virgin girl named Mary. We see it certainly at work in our salvation that we are chosen by God the Father. And yet Jesus secures our redemption through his death and resurrection. But we are brought to life through the Spirit of God. But it's this passage right here in John that we begin to see who Jesus really claims to be. It's eye-opening. So remember the setting. The Apostle John has just described for us this third sign that he has given us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. The sign was Jesus heals the man who had been lame and unable to work for 38 years. He's laying by the pool of Bethesda. Jesus tells the man, goes in the middle of all these lame people, and Jesus tells the man, get up, pick up your mat, walk. And the man's healed right there. But the catch is, Jesus has now broken these Jewish religious leaders' rules that they had added to God's word. Now remember, Jesus had not broken God's law to keep the Sabbath. Jesus had not sinned. But he had broken these religious leaders' rules. And now, he, as we read in verse 15 and 16, look at it in your Bible there. The Jews began persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. And get this word, persecuting. I mean, it sounds fairly innocuous, doesn't it? Like it somehow means that they're being really mean with their words. Going to make you cry. 
And that might be partially true that they're using harsh words, but the real meaning is that they're going to use any means possible to stop Jesus from preaching and declaring that he is the Son of God. And that means they want to kill him. When it says the Jews here, it's referring to the Jewish religious leaders, not the entire Jewish race. It doesn't mean just because you were a Jew that it's talking about them. It's talking about these leaders. And, and why are they actively persecuting Jesus? Why are they trying to kill him? Well, because he's healing people on the Sabbath, right? Well, partly, yes. But the real reason, the text says, is he is claiming to be the promised one, the Messiah, the anointed one, by claiming to be the Son of God and therefore claiming to be God himself. So now, Jesus is going to use this persecution to begin to reveal to these religious leaders and to us who he truly is. By the way, over and over and again throughout Scripture, that's what God does. Notice the pattern. God takes the evil worked by evil people of this world and then uses it for his purpose, our good, and his ultimate glory. And that, by the way, that's reformed doctrine right there. So what we're going to see is this passage is that Jesus is going to make five huge claims of who he is in front of these religious dudes. For time's sake, we'll only hit two of them. Uh, of these claims today. We'll come back and work through them as fast as I can, which is not very fast. All right. Now, in our passage today, Jesus, his disciples are also listening to why, and that's why we have this book, right? John's there listening to this. All these people, all the regular Jewish uh, guys are there uh, listening, and then you have these leaders. So let's take our passage apart verse by verse. That's what we're doing as we walk through John. Watch closely as Jesus is going to claim to have full equality with God the Father. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Uh, You're going to have to take a lot of notes. Just Jesus packs it full. Here it is. Jesus responded to them, my father is still working and I am working also. This is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he, he was even calling his own God, his own father, making himself equal to God. Now, this right here will eventually be the reason that they killed Jesus. And Jesus will allow that evil to happen. They will, he will allow these evil guys to kill him according to, look at this, the predetermined plan and the purpose of God the Father. This is the ultimate. You meant it for evil, but then God meant it for good Moment in all of human history. Now, this is the first claim that Jesus makes, and he will make this claim over and over and over again until his crucifixion, and then after his resurrection, he'll start making that claim again. By the way, it's this claim that distinguishes, distinguishes John's gospel from the other three. Here it is. Write this down. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his essence or being. People say they can't write fast enough, so take two drinks. So I'm taking two drinks. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his essence or being. This is the first two of the big claims we're going to examine here. Now remember, the Celtic... Whoop! Now it's spelled it. Remember the Celtic picture here. There's one God... Existing in three persons. One God existing or being and yet existing in three distinct persons. All three persons of the Trinity share the exact divine nature yet are different and distinct in the function they play inside the Trinity. Inside the Godhead. They are distinct in their function in their relationship to each other. The three coexist perfectly together without any of them or their role being compromised or confused, their relationship is seamless. And this is very important to understand as a believer. Anything that is necessarily true of God is true of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Let me see if I can say it this way. All three persons of the Trinity are equal in essence but distinct in function. 
all three persons of the Trinity are equal in essence, but distinct in function. I know there's some heavy hitting stuff. You can get this. Now let's keep that in mind as we look at how God the Father and Jesus are distinct in their function and yet equal in who they are. With regard to the eternal plan of our redemption or how we're saved, we need to think about how this works. How are we saved through the Trinity? This is big stuff. You got this though. Listen carefully. God the Father wills Will is accomplished by the Son, applied by the Spirit. Oh, please get this. God the Father's will is accomplished by the Son and then applied by the Spirit. For the past few weeks, as we've studied what the Sabbath means, we've learned that for the Jews who were observing the Sabbath, was that was at the very heart of their worship, right? So when Jesus challenges the man-made rules of these Jewish leaders of how to observe the Sabbath, these leaders, well, they're threatened. Their power's threatened. They call Jesus out for breaking their laws. So Jesus' Jesus's reply that my father is still working till now, and I myself am working, is saying that the Sabbath was not instituted for the sake of God, but a blessing and a command for mankind. In other words, the Sabbath rules did not apply to God, did they? The same way. So since Jesus is God, then he didn't have to follow them either, did he? So do you see what Jesus is claiming? God the Father is working, and Jesus says, I am working also as a son. Right now. Translation, I am the son of God, part of the Godhead, the Trinity. Now, think back to the past few weeks as we've studied the Sabbath, what that means. When it was set up by God at the end of the very first week of creation. Genesis 2-2 had said that God rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. But that does not say that he rested because he was somehow tired. Like, give me a break, this is really hard work. Now that's anthropomorphic language for our our benefit, meaning that his creative work was done and created the work. And remember, anthropomorphic simply means that it ascribes human form or characteristics or attitudes to a being that is not human. So like saying God's God the Father's hands, well, that's anthropomorphic language because we know God is spirit and doesn't have hands. But it helps us to understand God in a way that we can understand. It's like putting the hay down where the goats can get it. Make sense? Okay. So when God ceased his creative work on the end of the first week when he created the world in Genesis, the end of that first week, we understand that he did not cease from upholding all creation through his power. The author of Hebrews tells us plainly who Jesus is as the son. Listen to this carefully. Hebrews 1.3, the red I put in so you'd know what it's talking about. The son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Jesus, the son of God, comes to earth, born of a human from the Virgin Mary. He lives this sinless life, died on the cross for the sins of all those who would believe or who we call the elect. And it says, making purification for sins. Is raised by the Father through the power of the Spirit ascends to heaven to do what? What is Jesus doing in heaven? It says, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his power. It's Jesus that's holding it all up. It's Jesus keeping going, this world going through the power at the will of God the Father. But it's Jesus doing it. And we know that God never becomes tired. Why? 
Well, Scripture tells us in Scriptures like this, Isaiah 40, verse 28. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the whole earth. He never becomes faint or weary. There is no limit to his understanding. He gives strength to the faint and strengthens the powerless. Praise God. When God set the Sabbath day aside, boom, for mankind, it was set up as this divine example for mankind to rest one day a week. It's what we studied the last three weeks. And in that rest, to remember that God is the God who created and provides, and in that we worship him. The point I want us to get here is that right here is Jesus is claiming to be fully equal with God the Father. Now back to John 5. Jesus has just dropped a bomb here on these religious dudes. In fact, everyone here, and they're like mouth open like, And these religious leaders immediately understand what Jesus is claiming, that he's equal to God. Now for these these leaders, the reason they are so upset is not only is he breaking the Sabbath, but now he's claiming equality with God the Father. Literally, he's claiming to be God. Both of those are punishable by death immediately, without trial. Meanwhile, if you he says, Jesus is saying, if you see me, you've seen God. So these guys, their blood is boiling. But Jesus doesn't stop there, does he? I mean, in fact, he's just getting started. Because look in what he says next in verse 19. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. For the father loves the son. And shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these. So that you will be amazed. Now right here. We see the second big claim Jesus is making. Do you see it? Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his works. Write this down. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his works. Now check this out. For a Jewish man standing in front of these religious leaders, then this giant crowd of people that have come to see it, then Jesus' own followers, which is probably not a small crowd, to claim to be God was justification for these leaders to stone the guy on the spot for making such a blasphemous claim. So when these religious leaders confront Jesus on what he claims, if Jesus had not meant what he clearly says, he could have backed off. But he doesn't. In fact, he doubles down and comes out with even stronger language. When verse 19 opens, he says, truly I tell you. Or some of your translations will say, truly, truly. That's a good translation too. Jesus is using the strongest possible language here on purpose. He's emphatic. He wants all the people listening to what he said to understand, I mean this. I believe what I say. It's like if I were going to tell you something huge that you might not believe at first. Before I said it, I would say, guys, guys, this is the God honest truth I'm telling you right now. You gotta believe me. So important. I know it's gonna sound crazy, but listen, this is true. Jesus just says truly, truly. All right, so when Jesus sets it up like that, he says the son is not able to do anything on his own, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son likewise does these things. Oh. Get this, Jesus claims that he and God the Father are inextricably linked together in being and relationship and will. Jesus claims that he and God the Father are inextricably linked, means it can't be broken. They're linked together in being, relationship, and will. All three of those are important. I know it's a lot, so I'll give you a moment. Jesus claims that he and God the Father are inextricably linked together in being, relationship, and will. That although different persons inside the Trinity, they do not operate independently, they always operate in relationship. 
Now that includes the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But right now we're examining the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, Jesus. So if God the Father wills it, that is what Jesus then accomplishes. Both in nature and in extent, Jesus carries out the Father's will exactly. And in saying that, it's another clear statement that Jesus is himself divine, that Jesus is God. Maybe this goes without saying, but I'll say it here so you don't misunderstand. If Jesus hears from the Father and carries out what the Father wants to carry out, that means that Jesus has the ability to do everything the Father does. Jesus has the ability to do everything the Father does. Now talk about changing your perception of who Jesus claims to be. I don't know about you, but this is this is big in understanding who Jesus is as God. Because Jesus has all the, all the power, all the ability that the Father has. But in the Trinity, he only carries out what he hears the Father direct him to do. Jesus has all this power. You and I, we don't have that ability, do we? In and of ourselves. But Jesus does in and of himself. What we're seeing here is that Jesus is working with God the Father in perfect human unity and harmony. Jesus is revealing in this teaching the depth of the relationship between he and God the Father. Now what's ironic here is that these religious leaders, by accusing Jesus of sin, they're actually charging God the Father with sin because Jesus is only carrying out what God the Father is doing. Talk about a huge mistake. Talk about a lightning bolt, right? Now, but what is the answer to why Jesus watches the Father God and why does he carry out the Father's will so very perfectly? This is going to blow your mind. Let's look at verse 20 again. You'll see it. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he is doing. And he will show him greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Because of love, Jesus knows his father loves him. Ooh, you're going to love this. Hang on to this. What we're seeing here is that the absolute perfect unity of essence and love that the Godhead shares between the three persons. This is deep and total relationship between the Trinity. We can't accurately describe and get a hold of here. We just see a tiny little glimpse of it. The, the apostle Peter described what when James and John and he were on the mountain with Jesus. Do you remember? And Jesus, uh, uh, he is turned white. His clothes are turned white. We call it the Mount of Tra Transfiguration. Peter described that in 2 Peter 1.17 when he was talking about Jesus. He said, for he, Jesus, received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. What's incredibly interesting to me is that if we look back in verse 20 of John 5, when it says, for the Father loves the Son and shows him everything he's doing, the word love there is not what you might expect. It is not the Greek word for love that we recognize as agape, God's love for us. The word love uh, of uh, agape, the Greek word there, means a love of will, a choice. But the word here is a Greek word for love, meaning phileo. You don't have to write this down. Phileo, warm affection the Father has for the Son. It's an emotion. Denotes this personal attachment as a, a matter of sentiment or, or feeling. It's a devotion based on emotions. That's not what you expect, is it? You expect agape, don't you? The phileo Greek there is an interesting choice. You could say it this way. The phileo kind of love literally means brotherly love or a love of equals. 
Now this unique selection of this form of this love emphasizes Jesus' equality with God the Father. Why? Well, because it is distinguished from the Greek word for love, agape, that you know so well, which represents the devotion based on the will. Agape kind of love is the kind of love that God has for us, right? He decides to love us. Praise God for agape love from God. Another way to say this phileo love that the Father has for the Son is chiefly of the heart where agape love is chiefly of the head. By the way, this is the only time in the New Testament that phileo is ever used to refer to the Father's love for the Son in this way. But I think it's deep and it's on purpose. The verb loves of verse 20 of John 5 is also revealing that it is in the present tense, like it's happening right now. That, that means that this all-knowing love really leaves out the possibility for Jesus to not know the will of the Father. Or to say it this way, because of this deep phileo love of emotion inside the Trinity, there is no way for Jesus to not know the will of the Father. Because of this deep phileo love of emotion inside the Trinity, there's no way for Jesus to not know the will of the Father. They've always been connected this way. Has no start, no ending. It's a love of equals. And we're touching on some deep things of God right here. And we're starting to see the deep and powerful motivation of why Jesus comes to save us. Because of the love of the Father. This is powerful because even though we are made in the image of God, this is one of those aspects of God that God has emotions, we have emotions, right? Now this confuses us. Why? Well, because your emotions, my emotions, they're flaky. They're tainted by sin. We can't really put a whole lot of trust in our emotions. I mean, I can be happy, sad, joyful, depressed in a matter of seconds. But God, on the other hand, is without sin and is perfect and complete in every way. Now think about this. That's why he can act intentionally the way he does. His emotions, God's emotions, are perfectly representing what he feels and wants and reflects his providence, his plans. So when Jesus says the Father would show him, meaning Jesus, still greater works than these, like the resurrection, this healing of this lame man by the pool of Bethesda, this third sign would be just the beginning of the revealing of the power of God through Jesus. Jesus says, I'm just starting. This miracle and Jesus, others that Jesus had performed at this point had been amazing the people that had witnessed them. But Jesus is saying, hey, you won't believe the humongous things the Father has in store for me. And it's going to blow your mind. Paul Trimble's translation. In this passage, Jesus makes five major claims. We're going to examine the first two. Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his essence or being. We got that? And second, Jesus claims to be equal with God the Father in his works and therefore his ability to do those works. Next time we'll look at the next thing Jesus claims these to these religious leaders and it's going to shake them up and it's going to shake you up too. It, it has shaken me up as I put it together. Like it's expanded who Jesus is. But let me bring us back to where we started today. How can we know God? Not just know about him, but a personal relationship with him. How can we do that? If you're like most Christians, you have this view of Jesus that you have accumulated from sermons and from me and other preacher dudes and maybe books you've read, Bible study. Like you got this picture, here's Jesus, got him in a nice little box. But because you're limited, it's limited. But God is unlimited. What I want us to realize 
is that Jesus, in this passage that we've studied together today, Jesus is revealing to you who he really is. And it's going to expand you. As Christians, through the Spirit of God working in you, through this preaching and learning here about the character of God, we are being filled up. And the purpose of this revealing is to draw us into a deeper, closer relationship with him, to know him, to know God. Now, how do we know this isn't just just knowledge that we're accumulating instead of just a full relationship? Let me try to answer it this way. Three ways. First, a question you should ask yourself. As Jesus is revealing his character to you in these words of Scripture, does it make you want to know more about him or less about him? In other words, the more you know about him, the bigger he is in your mind and the bigger he is getting to be in you and you want to know more. Kind of like when you were first in love and you wanted to know everything you could know about that person you had a crush on. You remember that? You know, I want to know everything. But the more you know about him, the more there is to know, the bigger he gets. That's second the more you know about Jesus' character, the more you want to be like him. What that looks like is that you want to leave your old sins behind as the Spirit points that out. Like you hear it preached or you read it and you go, I didn't even know that was a sin. In other words, as your relationship with Jesus grows through the Holy Spirit working in you and changing you and convicting you of sin, you look at your life and you realize, you go, man, I've got some serious stuff that's wrong with me. Some sin I need to get rid of. We call that repentance. You, you want to start living more like Jesus. You want to turn from your sins because you love Jesus. Because he loves you. You turn from your sin. Third, you not only want to be more like Jesus, you want, to, you want others to find what you have found. You begin to tell people the gospel first and how you live your word, uh, you live your life, but then you use your words, you tell people where you found it because they're noticing something's different about you. The forgiveness of sins that you have. If you would, bow your head. Let's pray together. God, our Father in heaven, just the enormity of the love you have for us by sending your son to die in our place. Well, it blows our mind. God, we're humbled and yet we're thankful that you have chosen us to follow you. As believers that you have called us to life in your son, so we have responded in faith, the faith that you have given us. Father, you have poured out your grace upon us when we absolutely did not deserve it or merit it, we actually merited your judgment and destruction. So God, we say thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for saving us. As you just continue in an attitude of prayer, if you're, if up to this point you have not believed in Jesus as the Son of God, would you just look up here? If you're, you're a Christian, if you're saved, you just keep praying. You know what I'm doing. But as you've listened to the words of Jesus, I've read scripture, it's dawning on you. If it's coming to life, you are being regenerated. Jesus calls that being born again. You know, I believe you are there are some people that have been brought to life in Christ Jesus in today's message. That's not because of me. That's because the Spirit waking you up from the dead. Two things. Two things I want you to know. One, internally in your spirit, just believe in Jesus as your Savior and Lord. Trust Him to forgive your sins, past, present, future. That's believing in Jesus as your Savior. Your sins are forgiven, and the righteousness of Jesus has been imputed into your account. So what do you do after that? Follow Jesus now as your Savior and Lord. That means that you begin to follow Jesus' commands, His teaching and Scripture of how to live your life every day. 
At first, you won't know much. That's okay. So it's real important to be part of a group of people like the church here, this church. We will help you grow. That's what discipleship is all about. Living and learning together. Listen, we're all screwed up. We're helping each other walk. We're just forgiven. Right away, when you want to learn, is that all you learn is although your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus, you need to repent of your sins. Repenting means turning from those sins and turning to Jesus. Spoiler alert, some of preachers will tell you, come to Jesus and he will solve all your problems. That's a false teaching. Actually, expect your life will become harder, more complicated. Because as long as you're spiritually dead, Satan didn't need to pay too much attention to you. But now you've got a target on your back. Now that you've been born again, though, you're a threat to Satan's plans and purposes. So anticipate it, but rest securely in the reality. Jesus has this. He's all powerful. And you got brothers and sisters all around you. Now get this. You're still going to wrestle with temptation to take part in your old sinful ways. And sometimes you'll even fall into serious sin. When the Holy Spirit points that out, simply repent again. You did not lose your salvation. Remember, that is secured by God the Father, not you. But on your part, you now have the Holy Spirit of God himself living and active within you. He'll point out sin and help you to steer clear of it and repent of it. Your life from now on becomes one of daily repentance and trying to follow Jesus as best you can in the context of this sick, sin-fallen world with the rest of us together. We call this the local church. By the way, as brothers and sisters, we walk together. And you're part of a church all over the world. As you begin your new life in Christ Jesus, one of the first things that you need to do following Christ is to be baptized in what we call believer's baptism. We dunk you under the water. The change has been brought about inside you by God's Spirit. Not me, not preaching, not you, not by your decision. But by baptism, it is a way for you to show the world, show all of us, That you're a follower of Christ. That's like an outside symbol of what happened inside you. And that leads others to follow Jesus as well. And that is a witness to the world. And and now the way you live your life reflects on who Jesus is. Oh, let me close our time this way. Close your eyes along with the other Christians. God, our Father, we thank you for calling us to life in your son, Jesus. We thank you for washing our sins away and giving us the righteousness of Jesus. Help us to live that life with the power of your Holy Spirit until you take us home to be with you in heaven. It is in the name of our Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon from Bentry Church. To get connected at Bentry and for more information, please visit BentryChurch.com.